section of scripture to Jews of those days. And it consisted of five books. So five books, five teachings. And so we just finished the last section of his teaching. And we will see today that the events here are set in motion for his betrayal and upcoming execution. So I will read the passage. When Jesus finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink it again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So at this point, there's a lot that's happening in this passage. And I have several points to talk about. So the first point is that Jesus speaks life. Matthew shows his reason 
or the way he organizes book by saying when Jesus finished all these sayings in verse 1. This is referring to the teaching about the end times, which the disciples had questions about when these things would be. That was his last sayings, the last chunk of Jesus's teaching. After each of the five sections of Jesus' teaching, it concludes using a variation of the same words, when he finished these sayings, when he finished all of these sayings. And this phrase itself comes from the Torah, and it refers to the Jews' first giver of the law, which was Moses, the man who led them out of Egypt. And God gave him the book of the law, and it, once that was read, it said, when Moses finished these sayings. Deuteronomy says the same thing in, ref, in reference to Moses. In fact, in the Septuagint, which, is, which was a Greek version of the Old Testament, which was used widely during that time, it has the exact same words in the Greek as what Matthew writes here, which is also in Greek. So Matthew is saying that Jesus is the new and better lawgiver whose words are life. This is why we know that Matthew's intent was to show that Jesus' words are the true law, that all Gentiles and Jews should believe it. Jesus also recaps his previous predictions that he is about to be crucified. He wants to make it as clear as possible to his disciples that this trip to Jerusalem is not going to end the way they probably think it will. They think it will return, it will turn into Jesus being crowned King of the Jews in a time of celebration and the end of Roman occupation, right? We just saw the triumphant entry a few chapters ago, and they're not aware of these plots um, by Judas and the chief priests. They're unaware of this. So they're probably thinking, yes, we're going to go to Jerusalem. We're going we're gonna to kick butt, and we are going to take back our land. But Jesus is making clear that this Passover celebration, during this time, he will be crucified. He will be killed. Passover itself was a celebration of the people of Israel being freed from Egyptian slavery and being passed over God's judgment and plague of killing the firstborn in Egypt. In order to be passed over, they had to sprinkle the blood of a lamb on their door, do, doorposts. So it is no coincidence that Jesus wants his crucifixion to happen during this time because Jesus is the true Passover lamb whose blood is the ultimate protection from God's wrath and hell from our lives of disobedience. So I want to encourage you as believers to value the words and the life of Jesus. At least for me, I have really enjoyed going through the book of Matthew because I love the Gospels. Of course, all the books of the Bible are inspired by God and useful to Christians in our faith and practice. But there is something special about the words of Jesus and the life of Jesus. So I want to encourage you to read the Gospels, read about the life of Jesus, read about his teachings, his death, and his resurrection. You could easily do a paragraph or two of the Gospels each day and read through all the Gospels in a year. So that's my first point. Jesus speaks life because he is the focal point in human history. My second point is that Jesus offends his enemy. So after Jesus says this, the scene shifts from him and his disciples to the religious leaders. The priests and elders were those people in charge of the temple precincts. They were part of the Sanhedrin, which was like the 
Jewish Supreme Court, and it had binding decisions for the Jewish people. And they would have the political authority to condemn Jesus. However, because Jesus was so popular among the people, they wanted to try to do it quietly and not during the celebration, which brings Jews from all over the world. This is one of the biggest feasts where you need to go to Jerusalem for Jews. They don't want Jesus alive because Jesus showed them their hearts, right? That they have wicked and evil intentions and that they are hypocrites. And they also enjoy the status quo. Jesus makes this clear in the seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. We looked at that a few weeks ago. And you can even see in this text, um, what is it? Um, They are in, this is verse three, they're in the palace of the high priest. Sounds like a pretty good deal, right? They gather, he was able to get gather everyone into his personal palace, right? So they don't want things to be changed. They don't like him because he calls them out on their hypocrisy. They don't have additional lay, and they don't want additional lay preachers teaching anything contrary to the way what they had declared to be Jewish law, which Jesus contradicted many times. Finally, they don't want a Messiah coming to liberate the people because they are content and happy as it is. They got money, they've got respect, they've got a pretty easy life. And this is not so different today, right? There will always be people who will oppose Jesus and the Christian faith because he calls people to account for their hypocrisy and sin. People don't like that. I didn't like that either, but God used that to show me that there is a better way, that there is salvation, there is forgiveness to live under the banner of Christ. At the same time, I've shared my faith with people over the years, uh, and I've had my share of being made fun of and opposed. Certainly nothing serious, but I've gotten made fun of and you know, one person uh, yelled at me, nothing massive, but some opposition. And Charles Spurgeon, who was a famous preacher in the 1800s, he said, the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay, right? So what this means is that Jesus' message of repentance and salvation causes some people to respond in belief and others to oppose and resist God. Right, it says uh, in the in the letters of Paul that you know there's a fragrance of Jesus, and for some it's life to life, and for some it's death to death. So there will be people who oppose. If you are a Christian, you need to be ready for this. If nobody is ever giving you a hard time for being a Christian, I would consider whether you're really sharing your faith. You're really being faithful to Him. Of course, I'm not saying look for opposition. And some opposition comes from our own mistakes, my own stupidity, my own sin. But every true believer will face persecution in some form, and we shouldn't be surprised by it. In fact, Jesus considered as a badge of honor. So we know that Jesus speaks life. Jesus offends his enemies. My third point is that Jesus deserves the best. The scene shifts back to Jesus and his disciples, and they are at the house of Simon the leper. Remember earlier that after Jesus confronted the the elders and Pharisees in the temple, he returned to Bethphage instead of staying in Jerusalem because Jerusalem was likely incredibly crowded because of the Passover, which brought Jews from all over the known world, and it would be extremely difficult or impossible to get a room there. 
So Jesus decides to stay in the nearby town of Bethany. Now, Bethany is right next door. It's just a little bit east of where Bethany is. So Jesus likely was invited over or decided to have dinner at his place, um, which is shown by the phrase he reclined at table. He's reclining, relaxing after a meal. Now, scripture says nothing really about Simon the leper. We do know that he's not leprous anymore. Otherwise, nobody would be near him. And it's also very likely that Jesus healed him as he healed other lepers in his ministry and wanted to spend time with him. The dinner was also likely was also for some of his followers because you see the, the disciples and the woman and Simon and possibly some of his benefactors, those who contributed to his ministry. So you see this woman, she anoints or pours this oil-like perfume on Jesus's head. Now, alabaster is a valuable material used for ornamental and decorative purposes, and the best pure perfumes in Jesus's day were in these kinds of jars. Just like perfumes today, they, they look really shiny, they are made of crystal, or they look like crystal, and they reflect. Obviously, the presentation is in, in the bottle, right, as well as what's inside. And Mark's gospel says the perfume is made of pure nard, which was one of the best kinds of perfume. The value of something like this would be worth in today's money between twenty and $30,000. So obviously very expensive. So we can kind of understand why the disciples were so upset by this, because it's worth so much money. They call it a waste, and that it could be sold for a lot of money to help a lot of poor people. And you can see that their intentions were good, that they wanted to serve the poor. However, instead of asking why she did this, they go right to accusations and anger towards her. And you would think that the disciples would get it by this time, which they do with many things, but still they have some of their priorities backwards, right? And this woman, who may have spent a significant time with Jesus or is just a follower from afar, seemed to get it. Why did she anoint Jesus is the question. Why did she do this? It is likely she, that she anointed Jesus because she understood that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the King. He was the Christ. She believed that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And if you remember in the Old Testament, when God tells Samuel that David is going to be king, he anoints David with oil as a declaration of his kingship. After God rejected Saul as the first king, he tells Samuel to, quote, fill your horn with oil and go, and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to, him, to you. And when Samuel finds David, God says to him, arise and anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. So the anointing is, is deeply connected to this idea of kingship. Um, and it, that's what the symbol is. And just as Samuel poured oil on God's chosen and greatest king in the history of Israel, this woman pours out on the king of kings, the eternal king, not just of Israel, but of all the nations. This woman knew what the disciples missed, that anointing Jesus as king and honoring him this way was more important than giving it to the poor. And Jesus agrees with this. He affirms that after overhearing some of the conversation. He basically says this woman, leave her alone because she has said something good and wonderful to me. He shows that he is, he agrees that he is more important than the poor because he is the center of the universe. 
the person for whom and by whom all things were made. And he says the disciples won't always have him. He's going to die. He's going to be raised. And he's going to go back into heaven. But however, there's no lack of opportunity to give to the poor. We have poor today, 2,000 years later. But those with Jesus have very, have little, very little time with him. And he goes a step further, not just as an anointment for king, but he says that she is doing it as a proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah. It is also part of his burial. And it, of course, it was common in Jewish custom that when a loved one dies, they prepare the body with perfumes, which is what she has done for him, according to Jesus. So he clearly alludes and does not want anybody, like I said, to miss what he is saying. He's going to die. He says this over and over again. In fact, he is so strongly aware of his death that's upcoming that he says that this perfume is for his burial. Scent would linger on his lifeless body in a few days from now. And he told his disciples this throughout his, their ministry, and he says it again before they're having this dinner, and he says it now. This is both horrible and wonderful. And Jesus also lets those at dinner know that in this moment of both kingly anointments and burial perfume, that what she did will be part of this story of the good news of Jesus, which is clearly because we are reading it. So for us today, we also need to remember to put first things first. She kept the main thing, the main thing. She focused on what matters most, which is Jesus. We need to be careful not to be ruled or hamstrung by the tyranny of the good. There are many good things in this world. The desire to serve the poor like the disciples was good. Making sure your kids are involved in extracurricular activities is good. Going to church is good. Serving is good. Preaching is good. Working hard in your job is good. However, what this story illustrates is that sometimes good things can choke out the best things, the most important things, the most treasured things. A really good friend of mine uh, from my university days, um, he was very involved in his church, even pursued a little bit of seminary, but he decided God called him to the workforce. He worked at UPS, um, and then he, he worked hard, did a good job. He got a promotion, made more money, but a lot more hours, and he realized that his relationship with Jesus was significantly suffering because of the long days and weekend work. And you know what he did? He took a demotion. He decided, you know what, this is not the best thing for me right now. This is a good thing, but I'm gonna choose. They allowed him to have his old job back with less hours so that he could spend more time with Jesus. And that was a great example to me of somebody who was faithful to Jesus first and um, also think of Mary and Martha right Jesus was teaching and Mary sat and listened while Martha served the guests that were there at Jesus house and Jesus said that Mary picked the best thing which is listening to Jesus right the guests in the house were not going to die without bread or snacks right what good things so for my question for you is what good things are suppressing or hurting your relationship with Jesus? What changes can you make? If you be tyrannized by the good for too long, it can damage or destroy your relationship with God. Jesus speaks life, therefore. He offends his enemy, and he deserves the best. And here, Jesus provides himself. The next point. So again, the the scene shifts back from Jesus and his disciples to his enemies, showing that Matthew is kind of contrasting these ideas. 
right? If the previous story shows how this woman prioritized Jesus with her gifts, the next story shows what happens when you become ruled by greed. We see Judas Iscariot, not just a mere disciple, but one of the 12 chosen by Jesus himself, meeting with the religious leaders in the same evening, asking what he can get for the betrayal of Jesus. Now it was clear by this time that the religious leaders were out to get Jesus, especially after all the confrontation and conflict and judgments Jesus pronounced on them. So Judas saw, sorry, Jesus saw this as an opportunity to make some money. How does this happen? We know that Judas was in charge of the, of the, of the treasury, the money. And I'm sure that like the others, he started with a genuine desire to spend time with Jesus and share in the hope that he is the Messiah. He was given the task to be in charge of the money, and he probably saw lots of money go in and out of that bag. He, he was wanting to do these good things by serving the poor, maybe losing sight of Jesus, and then becoming maybe disconnected from Jesus and then having full control over the money. He began to take some of it, right? He wasn't getting caught, so he continued to do this. And over time, this bred an intense love of money and culminated in him making a deal with these religious leaders. So Jesus for Judas became a means to an end rather than the end itself. And that caused him to look for an opportunity for his enemies to capture and kill him. Over time, after forsaking a meaningful relationship with Jesus, it became about what Jesus could give him, which was initially money from the treasury but ultimately 30 pieces of silver for his life, which wasn't a huge amount of money. If you convert it in today's money and you account for the cost of living, it's about 1,000 to 1,200 KD, much less than the, the perfume that was poured on Jesus. So not much money for the life of God in the flesh for a man who taught Judas and the others. And I think this can be a problem for people today you know, sometimes we think of Jesus as this pinata and like a pinata is a big stuffed animal filled with candy and kids whack it. And we think of prayer as the stick. And if we whack that pinata enough, candy will come out. The problem is, is that we want the candy and we destroy the pinata to get what we want. This is friends is not the Christian life. If we are just using Jesus to get the same things as the world wants, which is money, power, position, possessions, pleasure, then you are in a dangerous and unhealthy place. And this is, be this is because Jesus does not promise to give us all we want, but what we need, right? And Jesus meets these needs not in expected ways, un unexpected ways. We see in the, in, the, in the text that in the next day, the disciples, they needed a place for Passover and they didn't know what they were gonna do. And it was critical for them to celebrate this. However, Jesus, in a way that required no money, but quite a bit of faith, tells the disciples to go to a man, say the time is at hand. And Jesus's words, they were used to give the disciples what they need. So we can trust Jesus to provide for us what we need, as he did with the disciples. But we should not use Jesus as a means for our own earthly ends, for our own earthly desires, as Judas did. We can think that if we obey him, it will make our lives better, 
but sometimes it doesn't always make our life better. Obe- obedience sometimes costs us something. Or I think of the example when I was growing up, uh, there was a, a movement for um, abstinence before marriage among Christians called the purity movements. And the, the pitch was that they, they sold to people was if you have sex before marriage, if you, if you wait to have sex before marriage, you'll have an incredible marriage, you'll have a great sex life and you'll have no problems in your married life. But that's not always the case, right? I had a good friend who did all the rules. He didn't even kiss his wife till the wedding day. And it ended up in divorce because she abandoned the faith and abandoned him. Right? So it doesn't, obedience doesn't always mean we get what we want. Jesus is not the pinata. We obey Jesus because we want his will to be done out of love for him. Not because we can get what we really want. Which that's not Christianity. That's not that's not the faith, right? If he is our treasure and our goal, he will meet our needs and even fulfill our wants sometimes. But it's not always in the way that we expect. And remember, Jesus is the end. So Jesus speaks life. He offends his enemy. He deserves the best. He provides himself and he provides. He knows our hearts. So again, this the scene shifts. We're at dinner with the disciples now. This is the Passover meal. As they're eating, Jesus tells one of them that they will that he will betray him. Now, of course, the disciples loved Jesus and spent at least three years with him during his public ministry. However, surprisingly, none of them were indignant or tried to refute this claim. Rather, they were sad and they asked one by one, If I is it me, is it I, Lord, to betray Jesus? They were clearly aware by now that Jesus not only knows and commands the future, he also knows their own hearts. And Jesus says, the one who dipped his hand in the bowl, in the dish, will betray him. So this is a strong emphasis on the intimacy. Not only is the betrayer in the same room, but actually sharing the same dish, the same food as Jesus. Now, Matthew has already shown us that Judas is the one who does this. And Jesus says that the Son of Man has a mission, according to the scriptures, but for the person who betrayed him, it would have been better for Judas not to have been born. And of course, when it's Judas' turn to ask, Jesus affirms this. This applies to us today that Jesus knows each of our hearts. If you have questions, doubt, faith, God knows it all. I don't know who is a Christian on this call, but Jesus does. And if you are not sure, if you are not a Christian or if you're unsure, this is a great time to ask him. You can put your faith in Jesus right now by accepting that he has died for your sins, that he rose on the third day, and he's coming back to redeem his people. You can believe this and escape the same fate as Judas. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) For it would be better for all those who die without knowing the Lord not to have been born, because those who who continue in unbelief and die that way will be cast into hell forever. And for those who are believers, continue to pour out your hearts, like in the Psalm that we read, because Jesus already knows and he wants us to communicate with them. My final point is that Jesus gives hope. Now, the same, same dinner, same conversation, Jesus institutes the new covenant. Remember, this is no ordinary meal, 
but this is the Passover meal, which Jews to this day celebrate. It's also the oldest feast among Jews, which is mentioned in Exodus. And as I said, Passover is designed to celebrate the Jews' freedom from slavery. And this is why they eat the lamb, put on the doorposts, bitter herbs, and, bitter herbs and unleavened bread, right? Because when the destroyer came to kill all the firstborn, God told his people to paint the blood of the lamb on the doorposts to let God's plague pass over and also be ready for action because they will be freed that night. So that's why they eat the unleavened bread. There's not even time to put yeast in your bread and these bitter herbs. They grabbed what they could. Ready to go. So therefore, Jesus did not take any old day to institute the Lord's Supper. Rather, he connected to an already established Jewish holiday symbolizing the fact that Jesus is the continuation and culmination of Judaism. He is the Messiah the Jews have hoped for for generations. We've seen before that the Messiah is not just for the Jews, but for people of all nations, but he is the Jewish Messiah first. He came to them first. So during this meal, he takes this piece of unleavened bread, which is like a cracker or flatbread, and says, eat, this is my body. Jesus has not died yet, but he is anticipating it saying that we need to remember that Jesus has done for us and the sacrifice of his body. The bread no longer only symbolizes the haste and quickness required as God miraculously freed the Jews from the Egyptians, but now it symbolizes freedom from the slavery of our own sin and addiction. The sacrifices of Jesus' body means that Jesus was a substitute for the punishment we deserve as sinners, and now we can live as Christ lived becoming free from sin. Then Jesus takes a cup of wine and tells his disciples to drink it and that this symbolizes the blood of the new covenant. We will see in the next chapter that Jesus is crucified and dies a bloody death. And a covenant is a term used something like an agreement between two parties. And when God rescued the people out of Egypt and led them into the wilderness, he gave them his rules and promised to bless them if they kept the rules. And as a sign of that covenant, it says that Moses commanded the people to make a sacrifice of oxen. And then it says that he, quote, took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these rules from Exodus 24, 8. So that was a seal the blood was a seal of this new, of this old covenant. Now, the problem with the first covenant was that the people did not, could not, would not keep these rules because their hearts, like our hearts, are bad, right? They wanted to live their way, and thus they could not keep the covenant and were subjects to God's curse. Later, another prophet named Jeremiah, who warned them of God's judgment and their captivity into Babylon, prophesied this from God. And I want... I don't like to read a ton of scripture, but I'm going to read this. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. 
I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive <clears throat> I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So then Jesus comes, and he says that this wine symbolizes the new covenant that Jeremiah predicts. This blood seals the covenant, which is the blood of Jesus. So this is not an agreement of rules and regulations which we are unable to follow. Rather, it is an agreement of forgiveness for many, as Jesus says. Anyone who recognizes and believes Jesus as the king who dies for their sins and can enter into this covenant and be forgiven of all sins, past, present, and future. As God says through Jeremiah, not only are our sins forgiven, but God puts his law in our hearts, empowering us to conquer sin and live a life that is pleasing to God, which the old covenant could not do. Finally, he tells that he tells them that even though he's going to die, that will not be the end. Rather, he will drink wine again after his vindication and resurrection from the dead, proving that the sacrifice was accepted and that this new kingdom is real. And finally, the disciples finish their meal and they sing a song to the Lord. So we're going to pray. God, I thank you so much for what you have done um, for me, for us for all those who call on your name, all those who believe that you died for our sins, that you made this new covenant. This covenant is not based on rules that we're unable to keep, but a covenant that is based on forgiveness, right? As the Psalm said, you atone for our iniquities. And this is through the new covenant, through the blood of Jesus who does this for us, that as we believe in you, You solve our greatest problem, which is our sinfulness before a holy God. And you bring us into a right relationship with you, God. And even though I've been a Christian for many years, I pray that I would always remember this fresh, which is one of the reasons why we celebrate communion, that we remember what, what happened, what Jesus did for us, and that you also empower us, God, to live a life that is free from sin, that can overcome sin, that can beat sin in our lives and make us more into your image. God, I pray as that we are about to take communion, that you would help us to remember all that you've done for us. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.